You're listening to Bitcoin and Markets. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My name is Ansel Linder. This is Bitcoin and Markets. And damn, do we have a full show today. I there, <laughs> I have a list of like five topics. We'll see how much I can cover. Uh, but of course, we have the Bitfinex hack. We have the Ethereum Classic versus the Ethereum Hard Fork. And a story about Turkey. The situation in Turkey is developing. So we'll cover that. Where should we start? How about Ethereum? Okay, so the Ethereum Civil War is still raging. Uh, it's between Ethereum Classic and what I call the Ethereum Hard Fork. It just helps me kind of visualize what hap- is happening. With Bitcoin Classic, that was going to be the new Hard Fork. Okay, but in Ethereum Classic is the original chain. So it's it's backwards from what we were kind of experiencing with Bitcoin over the last 12 months or so. The main difference here is that Ethereum hard fork is a moral judgment on what happened with the DAO hacker. That's all you can say. And I've said this in the past. It's a moral judgment. And they, the foundation has put their morality onto the blockchain. And a lot of people don't like that. And you can see not only do they not like the management of Ethereum, the Ethereum foundation, they don't like the moral judgment. They don't like the ability to change something because you disagree with the outcome. This is supposed to be a true um, record of history. It's not supposed to be um, changing at the whims of man. It is able to be changed, but it's very, very hard. And that is that symbolized there. The the Ethereum hard fork side. It's they don't care. They they want to make it easy to change where the Ethereum Classic side wants to make it hard. There's a lot of speculation happening, obviously, in Ethereum. Ethereum Classic has gone up in value quite a bit, where the Ethereum hard fork has stayed pretty consistent, but it's gone down as well. Uh, I think it got down as low as $8 again, and Ethereum Classic has gone up as high as almost $4. So, And I'm, I'm on the record of saying it will reach parity. I think this first initial stage, there's some of the whales out there, you know, because Ethereum was, um, Ethereum was pre-mined, right? It, it had an insta-mine where the foundation got a bunch, founding members got some money, and I think it's something like 200 people own 40%. I haven't looked at the numbers in a while, but they own like 40% of all the ether. If those people are selling their Ethereum Classic because they have a vested interest in the foundation, and things like that. You can see how that would push down the Ethereum Classic price. And if they're buying Ethereum hard fork uh, tokens, then they, that would be pushing up that price. So the whales have a vested interest to keep it different. But eventually they'll run out of money. And how long that will be, I don't know. The volume is pretty high. But how much of that is market making and how much of that is actual trading, no one really knows. It could go on for a while several weeks more, 
where the, the price is separated due to this type of arbitrage or, or reverse arbitrage, I guess you could call it. Yeah, so I see that, that happening right now. Um, a lot of Bitcoin maximalists or quote-unquote Bitcoin maximalists have gotten into Ethereum Classic. And I think that's not because they have a bone to pick with Ethereum. It's because they see value there. They see that it will reach parity. That the Ethereum uh, Classic has more value than the Ethereum hard fork because the Ethereum hard fork is that morality side and they see the value of blockchain being an objective truth of the past. And so um, there's these Bitcoin maximalists, it just fits with their model that they think it has more value. So it should be higher. They should invest in it because it's going to go up in value. It's simple as that. There might be some people out there that have an ill will against Ethereum, but Man, if you have an ill will, that means you're risking money to do this this ill will against Ethereum. And I don't know if there's anybody out there that cares all that much. Bitcoin maximalists believe that Ethereum will fail of its own merits. They don't need to help it fail. So there's this conspiracy theory out there in the Ethereum hard fork side that thinks Ethereum Classic is solely a Bitcoin maximalist movement. Where, where that could be somewhat true because a lot of Bitcoin maximalists have put a lot of money in it. I don't think it's a conspiracy in, in their intent. They just see value. They just see it as being as valuable or more valuable than the new hard fork chain that currently has what? Three times the value. I don't think there's any ill will, but that, that is a, that is a distinction there. All right, let's hit an article on Ethereum. This is by Aaron Van Verden. He is an author for Bitcoin Magazine. He might he might also write for other outlets, but he's he's really good. He's very hands-on. He goes in there, he researches, he really wants to be an expert on this. And so I think he is, for journalists, he and Kyle Torpy, I think, do really good journalism. All right, uh, he has a series out on Bitcoin Magazine called The Great Schism can end well for Ethereum Classic. I want to go over scenario number five. He talks about Ethereum 1 splinters, and he's calling the hard fork Ethereum 1, where it would probably be better to call Ethereum 2, right? Because it is the hard fork. It is the, the newcomer. So, all right, let me just read this first paragraph. As mentioned in part one of this series, now that they appear viable, Ethereum coin splits may happen more often. And, of course, that's not only true for Ethereum Classic. Ethereum 1 may experience further splitting as well. Hits it right there. It, they're both going to fork. They have to fork. There's a difficulty bomb hard-coded in so that, you know, right now it's running exponentially at a very low level right now. The minimum difficulty is increasing. And if they don't hard-fork, that eventually will get too high sometime um, early next year, middle next year, that difficulty will get too high and they will, you know, they'll never be able to find another block because it's just, is going to grind to a halt. So they both have to fork either to proof of stake, which is why they put that in there in the first place to force them to go to proof of stake, or they have to hard fork to keep proof of work to change that exponential difficulty rise so 
So yeah, they're, they're going to be four Ethereums and they're going to have to share the same market cap, I believe. So to measure this properly, I think we should look at market cap for all Ethereum. And the market cap for all Ethereum, it will give us a better understanding of what's happening. Whether it goes up or down, that, that's a better gauge than looking at maybe a ratio between them. Because there's a lot of ways that you can play with that, like I mentioned earlier. Alright, enough with Ethereum. Let's go on to a story from outside of crypto that's developing that I think is very important for the next couple years. And the way the world will look. So, and that is Turkey and its efforts to realign, the failed coup and its efforts to realign their allegiances. Alright, this is not going to be an exhaustive review of this, but the, the scenario or the situation that's evolving in Turkey is concerning. Uh, there is no good side or bad side. Erdogan is the president and he is an authoritarian dictator. Uh, Gulan is a Islamist um, leader in exile that, in exile in the United States, that has designs of his own. So, uh, I'll put a link to the show notes in a, in a piece. It was by, um, James Corbett. He did a great review of what's happening over there. So basically, Gulan is a radical Islamist and he had a bunch of sympathizers in the government, the military, the schools, the mosques, the press, everywhere. A bunch of these operatives for his, his movement. Then they all followed him. And this was not a problem for Erdogan when they had the same goals. And those goals were U.S. alignment, uh, you know, trying to overthrow Assad, etc., etc. Now it's it's looking like they're, that's the losing side of all of this. And it looks like Erdogan is going to be realigning towards Russia. He came out and apologized for the downed pilot. I think they actually paid some of the fa uh, money to the family of the downed pilot, the Russian pilot. Um, they're in talks for this Turkish stream again, the pipeline that goes through the Black Sea. Um, and, you know, it just looks like they're, they're warming up to the, the Russian alliance versus an American alliance. Um, so Gulan, though, is big time for the U.S. I mean, he's exiled in the U.S. He's works for the CIA or with the CIA. And uh, he's aligned with the U.S. and Israel to get rid of Assad, to get these, you know, aligned on the side of ISIS in Saudi Arabia. So that's the tension. Now Erdogan saw an opportunity to break out. And so he had a, held a big review. I mean, what does an authoritarian dictator need? First and foremost, he needs control of the military, right? Um, so he was going to do a purge of the military. And the way he was going to do that was they were going to review Every, every officer in the military was coming up for review. And all of the Gulan people that they have identified were going to be purged from the military. That put a ticking time bomb on this coup attempt. And Erdogan was ready for it. So when the, the Gulan um, sympathizers tried to stage this coup, 
they had a little bit of backing from the U.S. because the F-16s were refueled by U.S. tanker aircraft. And then those F-16s went and bombed Parliament as part of the coup. So, um, you know, they had some backing from the West and they, they, they staged this coup. But Erdogan was ready. They had planned this out and they were able to overcome it. But that gave them a great excuse to purge the Gulen supporters from every part of the country. So, like I said, not just the military, but the government, the press, the mosques, the schools, everywhere. That's why we saw 50,000 people as victims of this purge. Because they were purging this pro-Western um, segment from their country. The, what's concerning to me is that it's part of NATO. There's been a lot of strong rhetoric from the NATO countries. And other NATO members are having problems, like Germany is having riots, anti-NATO riots. People are starting to see NATO as the aggressor that they are. And what damage they've done to the world. And they don't want a war with Russia. And so NATO is on, on thin ice. But this is huge. If, if Turkey realigns, and maybe Germany realigns with Russia, it's obviously the end of the Euro, and it's the end of NATO, and what's that going to happen to, what's going to happen to the, the world? But I think also that one reason why Deutsche Bank is loaded up on these derivatives, I mean, Deutsche Bank has $60 trillion worth of derivatives, and the economy of Germany is only $3 trillion. So, you know, Deutsche Bank is a ticking time bomb. And I think that was on purpose, because now, if Germany decides to go east and align with Russia, take the sanctions off, start trading equally or freely with them, they'll blow up Deutsche Bank. The Western banks and the Western governments have a gun to Deutsche Bank's head. And they say, we dare you, Germany. We dare you. This means a lot for the financial world. And for Bitcoin, to tie that back to Bitcoin, um, you have all this uncertainty. And if you want to have a safe haven, a modern safe haven, you're going to go with Bitcoin. If you want to be part of the, the largest pre-mine in history, which is the gold a gold standard, then you're going to buy gold, which is not a bad choice either. The worst choice is to hold euros right now. I don't know. I don't understand it, how people can actually be holding euros. So anyway, this is a big development. And like I say, there's other people out there that cover this very well. But I think to really understand what's going to happen to Bitcoin in the next couple of years, you have to understand some of these geopolitical things going on. Uh, this isn't necessarily an adoption play. This is more like um, a <laughs> collapse is coming to the euro. Let's go on to the Bitfinex because I think that's what everybody's waiting for, and so we'll we'll hit that. Okay, so the the news cycle, the Bitcoin news cycle over the last two days has been all this Bitfinex stuff. They got hacked on the the morning of. August 2nd, at least morning for the U.S., evening, I think, for, for Europe. And 120,000 Bitcoins were stolen out of user accounts. And it's basically the way they had it set up was each user had a multi-sig wallet secured, quote-unquote secured, by BitGo. And the attacker got somehow got all the keys and was able to 
steal all of that Bitcoin. This was not obviously a problem with Bitcoin. Bitcoin functioned exactly like it was supposed to. It was a problem with the security of Bitfinex. Now, I, I did have some coins on Bitfinex, I, which I did lose. It didn't wipe me out, but it hurt. So I do have a vested interest in this. That's just a dis disclaimer up front. One of the things I think is interesting is the difference between Ethereum and Bitcoin. So Ethereum had this big hack happen. They jumped on to, oh, we need a hard fork. We need to save these coins. We need to, you know, this guy was a thief. Moral judgments thrown out everywhere and they fuck up their coin. Now, Bitcoin, this happens. No moral judgments. I mean, people hate it, but there was a general, like, uh, responsibility. Everybody, everybody in Bitcoin knows it's their responsibility that exchanges are not safe and it's their responsibility. They fucked up. I mean, yes, they can blame Bitfinex too because Bitfinex did mess up here. I'm not taking their, their culpability or responsibility away from them at all. They did, they did fuck up, but you know, nobody's calling for a rollback. Everybody understands this is the way the world works. You have to put on your big boy pants, big boy and girl underwear, and take some responsibility. Versus Ethereum, right? the shit show, the 16-year-old shit show that Ethereum is. So I think it's a great uh, dichotomy there, which is awesome. Now, this is not the first hack. We had a, the Mt. Gox hack, and to compare those, Mt. Gox was 800,000 coins. Where Bitfinex, I said, was 120,000. Mt. Gox had 70% of the trading in the world for Bitcoin. Where Bitfinex had, I think, less than 10%. Because OKCoin has damn near 40-50% of the market for trading. But Bitfinex was the largest dollar exchange. It was the only dollar exchange that had margin. That's That's where the crux of this issue comes in, is the margin side. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the CFTC, the Commodities Futures Trading Commission in the United States, they had an investigation going on Bitfinex, and Bitfinex changed their security model, how they handled their storage of Bitcoins. So they, they changed from a cold wallet to a hot wallet, or a hot multi-sig with BitGo. That was what led, ended up leading to this hack, or enabling this hack. And so in my eyes, it's a fundamentally a regulatory failure. It's a failure of regulation. It shows why regulation is unsafe. To regulate this market is unsafe, especially if the regulators don't know what the fuck they're talking about. So I threw that out on Twitter and I actually got some good, I got uh, Max Kaiser retweeted me and Andreas retweeted me and Swift on security retweeted me. I thought, hey man, it's like, my birthday or something. I, I felt great. But, and, and that, that meme of this, uh, CFTC being behind this kind of spread. But there's been a lot of pushback. Uh, people are saying, no, that Bitfinex had a choice. Well, yes, Bitfinex had a choice, but here are the facts. Before the CFTC investigation, Bitfinex had a cold wallet that was secure. After the CFTC investigation, Bitfinex had hot multi-sigs that were insecure and they got hacked. Those are the facts. And I'm not taking the responsibility away from Bitfinex at all. I'm not taking the responsibility away from the users at all. 
But I'm saying that in the absence of this regulation, this probably would not have happened. Again, the facts. I'll state them again. Before CFTC regulation, there was no hack, a cold wallet. After the CFTC regulation, or the CFTC investigation, there was hot multisig and a hack. And I think we need to hammer this home. Even if people will fight us tooth and nail, and they say, no, this was Bitfinex's fault. This is not a failure of regulation. Coin Center, the apologists, the government apologists up there, they came out and had a piece saying why it's not the CFTC fault. And l- let me let me pull that up and read that. I have it up here, and this is oh my god, it's so apolog- it's so government apologetic, man. They they. they Say, oh, it's not the F- uh, CFTC and it's not multi-sigs. So they're protecting the two people in this scenario that I think are getting off scot-free. That they don't want to face any consequences of this. And that is the CFTC and BitGo. Now here's an example of the rhetoric from the article. Uh, Coin Center sets up two straw men to try to tell us what we think or what the people that say regulation is to blame, what they think. And here's one, number one, wrong conclusion. The CFTC statement forced Bitfinex to weaken their security. Well, of course, nobody's saying that the CFTC put a gun to Bitfinex says that weaken your security. Nobody would say that. But what people against regulation are saying is that the CFTC put a gun to Bitfinex said it's a change your security with no understanding of what good security is. They made these regulations and they enforced them without understanding anything. They're ignorant and they forced a change. That is for real. That is exactly what happened. I mean, they're trying to say that this government regulation had nothing to do. This regular had nothing to do with the sequence of events. That's what they're trying to say. That if there was no government involvement, the sequence of events would have been the exact same. And that's bullshit. That's a cop-out. All right. The straw man number two, wrong conclusion, they say people are forming, is that cold storage is safer than multisig. That's not what anybody's saying here. Multisig is very safe if it's done properly. This this, uh, straw man takes all of the subtlety out, right? Or all the nuance that multi-sig is just as safe if it's done a certain way, right? But if I have a multi-sig and I publish all the keys, it's not safe. If I have cold storage and then I publish the keys somewhere, publish uh, the stuff, it's not safe either. But it's the way that these two things were implemented. Bitfinex had... Uh, secure cold storage. But afterwards, they had insecure multisig. So it was another straw man. Bitfinex, the way they stored the keys was BitGo had one, Bitfinex had one, and then Bitfinex had the other in cold storage. But it was a two or three, so you only need two signatures. Bitfinex would sign it, send it to BitGo, BitGo would sign it and send it out. But BitGo wasn't checking anything. Of course. There's going to be those fuckers out there that say, well, that's not in their contract. Contract is law. And that 
They, Bitco lived up to their contract. They're not contractually needed to do any of this. Blah, 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 blah. I'm so weak. This is silly, people. Bitco had no fraud protection. And, of course, they probably won't pay. They probably won't be liable. And that's fine. I don't care about that. But you know how we can fix this? All the customers out there at Bitco right now, you can do this on your own. You can do a multi-sig on your own, people. You don't need a fucking company like BitGo that's going to abandon you. And yes, most likely the users and Bitfinex, they can't go after BitGo. Alright? But you know what the highest court in the land is the market. Send these people a message. If you have an enterprise account with BitGo, you should turn it off. Or at least renegotiate. Make sure that you're covered. Get something in writing. Bitfinex was their largest customer. Guaranteed. And what do they do? They turn their back on them. They hang them out to dry. And I'm not taking responsibility away from Bitfinex or the users. There's enough responsibility here to go around. Enough blame. It's it's uh, kind of like, well, maybe a metaphor would be good here. My wife hates it when I use metaphors because she says I my metaphors are horrible. Um, uh, she also hates it when I cuss on the show. She's like, people aren't going to take you seriously if you cuss. Well, you know, you get emotional about this and rightfully so. I mean, this is money and freedom and all this stuff wrapped into one and human happiness. So you damn well better be a little bit passionate about this. So, okay. So my metaphor, maybe I can make a metaphor here about love. If I love somebody a hundred percent, does that preclude me from loving somebody else 100%? No, it doesn't. There's enough enough love to to fill the world. It's not a sum game. It's the same thing with blame or responsibility for some situation. That just because the users are 100% to blame and the Bifinex is 100% to blame doesn't mean that somebody else like the CFTC or Bitco can have some blame in this as well. Now, liability is a different story because that has to do with legality. Uh, I'm talking about going forward, you know, informing your, your actions in the future that if, if you put some blame on a company or a regular regulator or something like that, you can change your future actions. If you put some blame on BitGo, they might not face any legal recourse or any immediate financial recourse, but you can change your actions in the future. You can stop using them or speak out against them or support, uh, stop supporting them. Something like that. That's the market. That's how it functions. So if you're a small company or relatively small company, a startup or something, and you're using BitGo for enterprise multi-sig, you need to start looking for an engineer and get this in-house. That is if the regulation allows it. Because that's the thing that happened with Bifinex, is the regulation did not allow them to do this in-house. They had to go and seek this uh, BitGo for compliance reasons. Not for security, not for multi-sig, not for any of those reasons. They had to seek BitGo, they had to seek a third party, and have this convoluted structure to be compliant due to the regulation. So anybody out there that says that the CFTC is not to blame is full of it. They're an apologist. 
at the root of it. It is a government regulation failure. That's what it is. And if people like Coin Center or the Blockchain Alliance, and they want to come out with their rhetoric supporting government regulations, pandering to them, they will say, oh, no, 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 we want education and yada, yada. We can see through your bullshit a mile away, people. We see through it. The CFTC has some responsibility. This is bad regulation by ignorant regulators. They're not only financially Ill illiterate, they probably don't know how a fucking bank works, but they are technologically illiterate. These people are making your laws. They're telling you what you can do and can't do, or you go to a jail cell. My God. It's, it's exactly like Soviet Russia, where these guys that are sitting in their palaces and stuff, they try to regulate how you make a horseshoe. It's ridiculous. Central planning doesn't work. And we can see this playing out in front of our eyes with not only the real, like the legacy financial world, but with Ethereum in the Bitcoin space, we see central planning not working out. I don't know how much evidence we need. All right, let me cool down. Let's go back to the article and this is the last paragraph and I think this sums up, this exposes um, a lot of their thinking process. Okay, so let me just read it. Every hack is a step back for our community and a revelation of the continued vulnerabilities in these technologies. But every hack is also an opportunity to learn and grow resilient. Let's make sure we don't learn the wrong lessons this time around by drawing hasty conclusions about regulation and multisig. Give me a frickin' break. That very first sentence, every hack is a step back for our community and a revelation of the continued vulnerabilities in these technologies. These technologies, Bitcoin, did not succumb to any vulnerability. The vulnerability was the regul regulatory vulnerability. It was a problem in the regulation. The technology didn't have vulnerabilities. The regulation had vulnerabilities. Get that through your thick skull, Coin Center. And what's hilarious about the last line, the, the being too hasty to draw conclusions. Coin Center is the one that's drawing these wrong straw men conclusions. So not only are they drawing their own hasty conclusions, but they are hastily drawing the other side's conclusions. It's insane. So let's get back on the topic of Bitfinex. Um, it was it was a failure of regulation. You can't argue that Bitfinex changed their security procedures, not because it was more secure, but because it was more compliant. That's the bottom line. And this opens up the door now, however, to more regulation. And I thought that the block size was going to be the biggest topic of the, this coming year, but I think that it could be regulation, especially now that um, Ethereum is probably going to get sued or something like that. There's going to be some legal ramifications of the hard fork and all that. Maybe regulation is going, it's going to be at least up there with the block size debate. So that's be watching out for that. And, and I'm going to continually say over and over again during that time that it was a regulatory failure. They don't know what they're doing. They're financially illiterate and they are technically illiterate. So why are they even thinking about regulating Bitcoin?
completely jumping topics. I want to touch on a couple things really quick here at the end. And I know I'm going over my normal time, but I'll try to wrap this up shortly. Uh, OneCoin, it, it's a fundamentally different scam. It's covered a lot uh, in a lot of different places, so I'm not going to go into it very heavily. But I just want to point out that um, this is not your typical scam. Paycoin is your typical scam. It's a homegrown insider scam. It's uh, Paycoin, Steam it. They're they're made by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. OneCoin and R3, for that matter, those are outside scams. They don't give a crap about the about Bitcoiners or Bitcoiners' money. They're out to milk someone else's money. In R3's case, it is uh, big banks and government. In the case of OneCoin, it's retirees. Okay, it's people saving for their future. But OneCoin would not be possible without Bitcoin first blazing the trail. You know, uh, Bitcoin is now becoming somewhat of a household name. So, you know, people have heard about it. They might have read a couple stories in the, you know, mainstream financial press. And so when OneCoin comes around, the, they're not selling it to Bitcoiners. They're selling it to people that have heard about Bitcoin in passing for a couple years. And now OneCoin comes around and that's that's how they're getting their foot in the door. That's all I have to say. Like I say, it's covered elsewhere. So it's obvious scam. Next thing I just want to touch on was Jeremy Allaire's tweets. He's the CEO of Circle. There seems to be some sort of CEO collusion happening in regards to the block size and governance. I wouldn't be surprised if they are forming a development team and they'll come out with their own implementation of Bitcoin. So be watching out for that. I'll cover that big on the next episode because that's pretty important. I don't think it's it's any sort of dire threat or anything like that. Um, they're gonna le- they're gonna learn very quickly that people don't want a KYC Bitcoin blockchain, and that's what they're gonna give us. That wraps up another episode. Thank you for joining me. My name is Ansel Lindner. This is Bitcoin and Markets. If you'd like to support the show with a donation and keep me ad free, then uh, you can do so on the website bitcoinandmarkets.com. In each show notes, there are not only links and all the stuff, but there's also a QR code where you can donate. If you'd like to contact me, you can do so on the comments, the SoundCloud, on Twitter, or via the website. I prefer Twitter. That's just where I spend more time. That's it. See you next time. Peace. You've been listening to Bitcoin and Markets. Please like, subscribe, and we'll see you next time.